The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we say thank you for the gift of music, for the ability to sing truth, for how you've created it to resonate with us in different ways than just the spoken word by itself does. And thank you for that song in particular that reminds us of, of marvelous and intriguing things. We can sing of a king who reigns and of a cross and a grave in the same song. That is strange and marvelous. You've sent a king and you have enthroned him oddly, enthroned him, lifted him up on a cross and then took him away into heaven where he sits now and reigns. And we say thank you for that. Thank you for the chance to sing of it. Thank you for stirring our hearts with it. You provided what we need, a ruler. But a ruler who has shown himself for us in great humble love, who has accomplished for us the thing we needed, reconciliation to you. He has made peace by his cross, and we say thank you. And now, as was prayed earlier, would you help us to understand you, to, to not just intellectually understand, but I would even say, in a sense, emotionally understand, to feel, to feel the truth, to know it and to feel it, to see it in a way that that uh, tastes sweet and good. This was prayed earlier, and I reiterate it, Lord, and, and request of you that you would now move and open your word and show us good things from it and build us up for our good and for your honor. So build your church, Lord. Draw people into it. Make the word clear. Spirit of God, would you have your way now in this room to illumine the scripture and to illumine our hearts and to connect the two? Build up your people and honor the name of the Son. That's what we ask you for. We pray in his name. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the middle of Luke chapter 19 and the end of Jesus' journey toward Jerusalem. Ever since chapter 9, you recall, we've been following Jesus as he moves towards the city teaching and healing as he goes, all of which has been presented to us to show us something of who he is, but also to show us what we are supposed to be. Faithful followers of his, disciples. That's been going on for a while now through this book, a point which was pressed home for us last week in the parable that Jesus told while in Jericho. He's a short day's walk from Jerusalem. He's about to arrive there and all of the crowds, all of the, the large crowds that are following with him are expecting that when he does, when he does get to Jerusalem, the powerful, mighty kingdom of God will suddenly, immediately was the word, suddenly and immediately appear. Great and glorious victory is just, just six hours down the road. But that's not the plan. That's not the way it's going to go, and that's not the way things are now. Instead, we have to wait. We have to wait for that day through much pressure and through much disappointment. He's first going to depart like the nobleman in the parable that Jesus told. He's going to go away to heaven and be enthroned there and begin to reign there, so we won't be able to see it with our, our human eyes. We'll be able to see all the powerful, glorious reigning. We're going to have to wait in faith. And to help us wait faithfully, discharging our duties, giving, our, giving of our resources faithfully like good stewards, Jesus helps us with a promise, again illustrated in the parable, with the, the rewards that come, come to those who are faithful. He promises great reward upon his return. And so, that's what drives faith. That's what faith is. Faith is forward-looking, not backward-looking. Faith is forward-looking 
sees a promise, believes it, and that then drives current action. So Jesus says, illustrated in the parable, I will reward when I return. And that's what he puts out in front of us to help us wait. There's a promise, not just a command, do this, but a, a promise of reward. Do this and there will be good to come to you. There will be grace in the future. To allude to a book written about this subject. We see that and see from him his good and generous and, and loving character. He is not a hard, teeth-gritted, hard dictator. He is a king. He is a ruler, for sure. And when he comes, for sure, he will judge. Those who reject him in his rule, also seen in the parable, the final servant and the citizens who do not want him, who hate him, it says. There will be dreadful consequences for finally, final resistance to him. That is true. He is a king and he is holy. But he is not hard and mean and severe. That is not his nature. He is a God of steadfast loving kindness. And he promises to reward those who seek him in faith, dependent and humble. You will find this king to be good if you come to him faithful and, de and dependent and humble before him. You will find from him relief and life and peace, which is what brings us to our passage today. The triumphal entry, it's called. Though technically, the next passage also has him just outside of the city looking at it. So he, this, this entry is more like kind of final approach for landing. He's not actually getting into the city yet, but it's called the triumphal entry. And it is indeed a scene of, of triumph, of thunderous, joyful celebration, praise, acclaim, delight. Even though, as we know, in large part, the people don't really know what they are saying. Though what they're saying is true. We look at this with, with more information, with further understanding, and we know that, that they don't quite have the how right. They do have the who and the what. They, they know who he is. They're, they're declaring who he is. He's the king, and, and what he's doing, he's bringing peace. But they don't quite know how. We know more about that. But he is the king, and he is coming in peace. And that's what we're going to look at today. Let me read the passage, and then I'll draw out two observations from it. One about who he is and what he's doing, and then secondly, about what our response to that should be. So here's Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went, and went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. Throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. That's our passage for today. Luke 19. Two observations. Here's the first about Jesus and who he is. He is the king. 
sent by God to bring peace. He's the king sent by God to bring peace. In several ways, this passage is the culmination of the long testimony all throughout this book of the kingship of Jesus. And if we want to be technically correct, technically accurate, as we just saw in the previous parable, the full enthroning and reigning of Jesus doesn't happen yet until he goes up into heaven and sits down at the right hand of the throne and begins to reign. So we know there's something that's, that's yet to come. However, throughout all of this book, from the very beginning on, God has been identifying for us Jesus, kind of fingering him. This one right here, this one right here, this one, Jesus, this one, this one, this one. Again and again, 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 showing this is the royal son. This one. He has come with power to reign over nature and demons and people. We've seen it again and again. All the mighty works that are mentioned here in this passage in verse 37. They declare again and again as he, as he commands demons, as he commands nature, as he commands illness, as he commands birth defects, as he commands all kinds of maladies, as he forgives sin. It, again and again, the mighty works declare the kingdom has dawned and this one sits on its throne. Jesus. It's all over this passage in ways that are familiar to some of us, but perhaps new. You haven't been here before. We see it reiterated in the passage here. His command over the circumstances of life. Verse 30. He gives some direction to a couple disciples about where to find a colt, a young donkey. And about the state of that young donkey, previously unridden. And about the owners of the donkey, what they will say in objection. And about the response to them that will appease them. Those are the details. And verse 20, 32 they found it just as he told them. 33 and 34, it all went down exactly as he predicted it would. Now, it's easy to just read through that and pass through it quickly. But it's in red ink, which as you're looking at your Bible, always the, the part in red ink should kind of draw your attention. That's all spelled out for us because we're intended to be put in the, in the shoes of these two disciples as they walk into town and realize piece by piece, step by step, they're walking under the controlling hand of Jesus. It's exactly like he said. 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 From afar. He doesn't have a cell phone. He didn't call ahead and reserve a donkey. How does he control this? He's the king. What we see here is what we've seen many times throughout the book, his providential control of and knowledge of everything. There's no miracle here. These are just people and animals doing what they do. Miracle is, is a suspension of the natural. This is completely natural. Things doing what they do all worked out for the purpose of God by God. By Jesus, showing us something about himself. He's the king who providentially reigns over the stuff that people do not control, but he does. There's a little more here. We, we look at the details of this event. What's the kingly authority that he has? What's his providential rule? What's it used for? Well, think about the animal. What's with a young donkey? A donkey and then a young one at that. Small. What's a colt for? Well, it's certainly intentional and meaningful. If we were to look back into the Old Testament, which is where, where this points, the first connection of king and young colt donkey, first connection is way back in Genesis 49 when the, the Messiah is predicted to come from the line of Judah. And if you were to go back and read that, you'd find some really interesting imagery. You'd find Judah, you'd find king, you'd find the vine, often used of the people of God. You'd find a colt, a donkey, you'd find his garments washed in the blood of a grape. You'd find, that's some interesting imagery. But the closest connection, the, the deliberate allusion here is to the prophet Zechariah. If you were to look at Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, you'd see the prophet there foretelling 
judgment against Israel's enemies, and then deliverance for God's people. It reads there, rejoice greatly and shout aloud. Why? Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah 9, 9. If we were to read 10 and the following verses, we'd see he brings an end to war. He shall speak peace to the nations and he shall rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Because the donkey is not a horse, it's not a warlike animal. Even in other cultures in that day, when rulers, when kings would, would want to approach some place in peace, they would ride a donkey, not a horse. It's a symbol of, I, I come not in power to make war, but I come in humility to bring kindness and mercy. I come in peace. You think about it, it's, it's an incredibly vulnerable position. You're not actually mounted that high off the ground. If you were to sit, a grown man to sit on a small donkey, your feet are barely off the ground. You, you don't have the high lording posture of sitting on a war horse. You are among them. He's not coming to conquer with great might. This king is coming with kindness and a gentle spirit. That's what Zechariah foretold. Look, your king comes to you, the king, the predicted king. He comes to you on a donkey colt, humble to bring peace and not just to Jerusalem, he speaks peace to all the nations from one end of the earth to the other. And with that, all the people are to see it and rejoice and shout aloud. That was all foretold, and Jesus deliberately embraced it right here at this moment. He sent a head for a colt and mounted up on it and then moved to draw near to Jerusalem. He had need of the colt, not because he needed help walking the last few yards. The Lord had need of it because he needed to, to connect in front of all the people and for us today. This is the king, long promised, the one who brings peace, the one who comes humbly, Jesus. He wants to connect those two things right in front of our eyes so that we see that's the king and that's the kind of king that he is. He fulfills the prophecy. I'm the one sent to bring you peace. The disciples understood. They set him on the colt, verse 35, spread their cloaks on the road to keep even the animal from getting dirty from the ground. This is a sign of homage, of adulation and homage. They're making a statement. Luke is trying to show us, and then he finally says it to us in verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's underlined because they inserted the word king. They're quoting from Psalm 118, and it does not say king there. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they changed it. He's the king. He is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The king sent by God who comes in God's name to do God's work. Humble, lowly, riding on an animal of peace because he comes to bring peace. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Which it might be a bit of a mental stretch for you to think back. Do you remember way back, like three years ago, when we started Luke? <laughs> Probably don't. But you might, if you, if you just, if you think, if I say, and a multitude of angels cried out. What does that make you think? Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth with those with whom God is pleased. Very similar. There at the very beginning and here at the end, you've got a multitude of angels and a multitude of people crying out similarly, glory to God in the highest and peace This is the declaration culminating here as he comes into the city. He is the king sent by God. He knows all, he sees all, he controls all. 
And that should make us think a couple of things. A couple of things first that are true, but not quite the point. If you see Jesus as king, it should encourage you tremendously, particularly when you face a world that is out of our control. I mean, we, we heard, prayed earlier, some parents in our church dealing with a newborn. It is, it's probably got to be one of the most frightening things you face. Your newborn child, out of your control, hooked up in, a, in ICU. What do you do with that? I can't do anything about that. How good it is that there's a king who reigns, who controls everything, who is, who is in charge. You face things like that that are tremendously frightening and tremendously unsettling. The fact that Jesus is king is tremendously hopeful. That he reigns, that he's a good king who has not just what's right in front of his physical eyes, but has all of the earth under his hand. That's a good thing. Calls out for for hope and trust in us, but that's not exactly the point. It's also worth noting that if we think about the kingship of Jesus, we look at how all kings are. All kings take their power and press into the realm. As far as the realm reaches, as far as their hands stretch, they press into the realm who and what they are and who and what they value. They take their power and push their character into their realm. All kings do that. So to look at this king and say he's going to press into his realm his character, which is, thank goodness, good. He's a king who comes in righteousness. He's a king who is holy. He's a king who is humble. He's going to press that into the realm, meaning he's going to draw people in and build people up like that, including you and me. So here's, here's the kingly power of Jesus at work to grow me up, to change me, to sanctify me and you, to make us more like he is. That would be for our good, and that would be to his great honor. And then you think about his great honor. It's not hard to think about a king who is majestic and glorious and almighty, who sits enthroned. All that language, all that language does this in our minds. King, royal, majestic, glorious. You know, that language kind of makes you stand on your toes. It's this kind of king. And that's all true, and that's all good. That's all worth thinking about and worth hoping in, but it's not the point. If, our, if in our minds we run down any of those paths, we would end up in truth, but only half the picture and not actually the half of the picture being emphasized here. Jesus rides into town on a small, immature donkey on purpose. Not, I don't know if you can see this, but not to make us think like this. To make us think like this. He wants us to get, to, to grasp and pull in and see. He wants us to get the meek, humble, lowly side of the king. King, the meek and humble and lowly side of the king. The king who is, this is a word commonly used for kings, a king who is a shepherd. Lots of kings call themselves that. The good shepherd in particular is worthy of the term. A shepherd, a, a king who would lead and exert Power and authority, indeed, for the life and well-being of the sheep in his care. A king who is indeed going to rule, for sure, with power, for sure, but not just to make a name for himself, not just to lift up himself, not only that, but also to make a life of blessed peace for those entrusted to him, those apart from whom, apart from him, who are not strong but are weak, who apart from his mighty service to them are trapped, harassed and helpless. Troubled, attacked, abused who are at war 
who are oppressed by powers too strong by them, who are plagued by weaknesses, who are at the mercy of evil and who have no hope. That's where the people in Zechariah are when that prophecy comes to them. That's where the people in Jerusalem are when Jesus rides up to them. They are oppressed and downcast people. Neither in Zechariah nor in Jerusalem nor today are the people to whom this king comes privileged and powerful and in control of the levers of influence. See, we got, we got to switch something around here. We often think we often think that, that what this whole walk with Jesus thing is about is might. You don't often say it like that. That's how we think about it, often. Because we do not like vulnerable weakness. But all through the book, the book, all through the book, the walk with God, the walk with the king is the walk trailing behind somebody who's carrying a cross. It is the walk of weakness. All the way through. And we miss something, we miss something completely if we do not see the king here and look at him as a liberator of lowly ones, as one who liberates people in their lowliness, not initially, I mean, one day indeed to exalt us, but not initially to lift us up into a position to reign with him, but to sustain us in the position of weakness, to uphold us so that while sorrowing we may rejoice, while hard-pressed we may not be broken, We do not like to think like this. We wish that he would just put some, some strength into it and change things. It works differently. He is a king, a shepherd who sees our need and is willing to stoop humbly to meet it. You see a king like this you see a king low and humble. And you see a king like that that is about helping the low and the humble and the weak. You should realize that you've met a king you do not have to run from. You can run to him and know that he is gentle and humble in heart. And when he calls out to people who are weary and heavy laden, saying, come, come, come. What you'll find from him is, is arms that are open. You may not find from him, if you're looking for, to come to him and find that he will exalt you and make you the powerful one. That may not happen. Not yet. But what you find is that he will welcome you and he will uphold you and he will give you what you actually, truly, most deeply need. Peace. It's peace in heaven that we read of here. And we know the rest of the story, understand some more of what that means. But most of the crowd that day didn't get it. But peace in heaven is God at peace, God peaceable with those who have received what this king is bringing, the salvation that he's bringing. This king was ultimately sent, we've read the rest of the story, we know. He was ultimately sent to Jerusalem to be killed. That's what he's going to do. That's how he's going to spend himself to address our need for peace. He's going to be sacrificed as a sin offering to pay the penalty we deserve. That's what makes peace in heaven. That's what makes God at peace. Peace in heaven and peace on earth with those upon whom God's favor rests. 
peace between heaven and earth, between God and people. That's what we need. That's what this king is lowly, humbly embracing. He's coming to take the death of the cross so as to give us life, to give us back God. What animosity in heaven, what animosity between people and God means is is a separation. We have been cut off from him, and he has come to bring us back, to put us at peace with God, to give us back God. Humbly and lowly so, because what, what he needed to do to do that was he needed to die on the cross and make that possible. But you see what comes out of that? It's not that you become exalted on earth, but that here on earth, amidst all your trouble, you face that trouble now with God at peace with God. That is remarkable. He's an astonishing king, willing to stoop down humbly to make a true and lasting peace between us and the God who made us. This is a good king. A king that can be run to does not need to be run from. A king in whom you can find hope. And when you see that, what rises up out of you is what rose up in this audience here today. Here's the second point. Rejoicing praise is the natural and fitting response to such a king. Rejoicing praise is the natural and fitting response to such a king. Here's the king, presented to the world, humbly riding down the Mount of Olives, and the response is clear and dramatic. End of verse 37, the whole multitude of the disciples, the whole large crowd of them, they began to cry out, to praise, to rejoice. That's the natural and appropriate response. Nobody told them to do that. It just came out of them. Now, we know that they actually misunderstood something. So we need to think about this a little bit because it it creates kind of an odd disjunct in our minds because we know that shortly most people in this crowd are not going to be with Jesus. They're not going to be on his side. So we've got to think about that for a second. And the Pharisees who were here in the crowd also, they remind us of what we just saw before in the parable last week that People don't actually want Jesus as he really is. So we got to think about that a second. Important thing to note. And it's important to note it because when we get this, we're going to see we still have the same point about rejoicing praise, the natural and fitting response. So note this. They see the king... They see he's bringing salvation, he's bringing peace, he's bringing deliverance, and they rejoice naturally. The problem is that they have misunderstood the definition of salvation, peace, deliverance, etc. They don't have the, the chain of events, is, it still holds, it's still right, they just have misunderstood the definitions. I think we're supposed to see a clue of that in the mention of the Mount of Olives. It's twice mentioned there. This is the little touch point with their misunderstanding. We've already seen Zechariah chapter 9, the king coming riding on the donkey. If we look ahead at Zechariah 14, we'd find the Mount of Olives. And we'd find there some complex prophecy about the day of final judgment when the Lord would come and stand on the Mount of Olives and judge. And in particular, he would bring a plague on all those who oppress Jerusalem. That's what's on their mind here as they see the king, the donkey, the Mount of Olives. They're thinking all of that in Zechariah is going to happen right now in front of my eyes. And that's where they're mistaken. They should have noticed Zechariah talks about him standing on the Mount of Olives to to dispense judgment. When he began to ride down, notice the little point made about already on the way down. 
When you began to ride down the Mount of Olives, you should have thought, wait, 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 something's not right. They didn't see that, though. They misunderstood. Now, our point is not to understand Zechariah. The point is to see they misunderstood what peace and deliverance and salvation is. But they got this much right. When you see the king, and when you see in the king's hand peace and salvation and deliverance, what naturally rises up, you don't have to tell yourself, you don't have to order, what naturally comes up is joyful praise. That's what Jesus is getting at in his discussion with the Pharisees. The Pharisees are still resolute in their opposition. They, they do not like what's going on. They, they think it's inappropriate, it's offensive. And so they tell Jesus, rebuke your disciples. And his response, that can't happen. Not just, no, I won't, but I can't. somehow we could suppress it, bottle it up, force them to be quiet, the rocks would cry out. He does not literally mean that inanimate rocks will become animate creatures and speak. What he's saying is that you can't bottle this up. There is a natural and appropriate and, in fact, unstoppable connection between king who brings peace and joyful praise. And you can't break that chain. I, I can't tell them to be quiet. That's how they respond. That's how we would respond if we saw him as he is. But we don't. We don't see him as he is. Not in our fallen state. One of the blessings, then, of what God has done for us at the cross is to open our eyes and show us this true salvation, this true peace. Not like they understood it, but like it actually has happened. Peace made with God. To show us that for our joy. Not just to make us clean or righteous, but to cause us to see that we have been made clean and righteous. Not just to bring us back to God, but to show us that we have been brought back to God. This is important because a paid debt, a fixed problem, only generates joy if it's seen. Think about this. If you own a, if you own a house, say you owe a couple hundred thousand dollars on your house. If I paid that off yesterday and you don't know it, it hasn't actually changed anything for you. Right? I, I mean, I didn't pay it off yesterday. But if I had, and you don't know, I mean, it wouldn't matter. You'd, you'd send in the monthly payment again. You'd just keep paying the mortgage unaware of and certainly not delighted and thankful and happy. There wouldn't be any change in you if you were unaware that the debt had been met. It's the awareness of the meeting of the debt. It's the awareness of the blessing that actually changes how we are. So God does something in salvation, in our salvation, not just to fix this relationship between us and God, not just to make peace, but to make us aware of peace. So we would recognize the reality of it. To see that God has become favorable towards you. There is peace in heaven for you because of what Jesus did on the cross. And God wants you to know that already, to know it to be certain of it, to rest in that. And towards that end, that's why he's given you the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We sometimes think of the ministry of the Holy Spirit as about 
teaching me to walk in the truth, to grow me in holiness, to, to be an instructor or a guide. Yes. But how he grows you in holiness, how he is an instructor and a guide to you is first and foremost this illumining work of revealing to your, your heart's eyes you are at peace with God. Done. That's counterintuitive to us in some ways because we think, and often work this way, how do you motivate good behavior in people? You leave them a little bit on edge and a little bit uncertain. You know, you hear about athletes who have a contract year coming up. You know what that is? It's the last year of their contract. And very often their statistical performance improves. Why is that? Because people are going to decide how much to pay them based on what they just did. We want to leave them a little bit on edge because we know we might get a contract year performance out of people. If we leave them a little uncertain, are you actually accepted? Are you completely loved? Are you welcomed in and okay at peace? I don't know. Let's see. That might get some more performance out of you. But that is not how God works. God works exactly oppositely. I'm going to put the Spirit of God in you. I'm going to put my Spirit in you to open your eyes and show you and cause you to rest assured that you are mine and I am yours and we are at peace forever and my smile is on you. And you can't ever sin your way out of that. You can't undo that. You can't make me less pleased or less happy with you. And ironically, that is how he will move you to repentance and move you to obedience. It is his kindness that does that. Not his suspended approval. He has not just made peace, but he wants you to see and to know that you were at peace with him. To see and to know that he has a wide and long and high and deep love for you. And to rest in that. That then will inflame in you a joy. Do you see it? Christian. I'm talking to you. In one sense I'm talking to you about this is what should be. And I, I kind of want to say, do you see it and is it? Over here we get the textbook. This is how sanctification works. This is what peace with God is like. This is how it was accomplished. And over here we have liberty. Maybe. Do you? In some sense, I have to say in between and say, Spirit of God, would you open the eyes of our hearts and cause us to see because all I can do is talk about the textbook. I can't do that. But if the Spirit of God were to come upon you and pull away the scales and show you, you are His. Not by any of your weak works, but by His mighty deed. Humbly accomplished as He rode into town on a, on a little donkey to be killed. To give you life. That you would see that. It's the intention of God and why he poured the Spirit into you to pour his great love into you, to cause it to run through your veins and change how you think of him and yourself and of life in this world. It would be a lasting fuel that would cause a, a fire to burn in you, the truth of peace with God, joy. And then if that were to happen, it would cause you to walk in dependence on him. Think of how this might matter. Think, think of some challenge that you might face in life. Some, I'll, I'll pick something, a pressure at school or at work to perform up to a certain standard that you're not sure you can make. You get a job performance review coming up or a big test or a big match or something. Don't know if I can do it. Stress will come from that. Stress will come there. What would it mean right there if the Spirit of God were to help you see this King for you, humbly so, powerfully so, putting you at peace with God? The fear 
that is at the heart of that stress. What's, what's the stress? The stress is about fear. I don't know if I can cut it. And if I don't cut it, the consequences are bad. And I fear that coming. And I fear how that will feel. It will be hard. It will be humiliating. That fear can't thrive in an environment in which you vividly know that in fact you are totally secure, totally loved, totally certain of a future. I don't know if I can cut it. And if on the other side of my failing to cut it, there is, oh wait, there is complete acceptance. There is a secure future. There is a plan and a hope and a God who reigns and who loves me deeply. So I might lose my job and be okay. It takes the spirit of God for you to actually think like that and believe that, but that's what God does. That's, that's what God does. What would come out of that is not fear and stress, but rest and praise to God and joy because you would find, man, that's what I need. The fact that the king made peace with God actually matters as I'm looking at job performance X, Y, and Z. And not just about stress and fear, the temptation to other myriads of coping sins, that also can't grow there in that soil of peace with God. Some, some of us will cope with that stress by being angry or tearing down the competition or cheating or lying or cutting corners so that I won't fail but will in fact appear to succeed. But if this king seems so glorious in my eyes and if failure is not the end of my life, then those temptations have less hooking power. All of that is, is built on the fact that I am, you are, if you're a Christian, you are at peace with God. And if you're not a Christian, that can be you. Become a Christian. Trust Christ and find peace. Find life. This makes for joy in you to his praise and not just a temporary rejoicing. It's built on a life that moves, moves smoothly because we all know that ends. And that stuff changes. If that's what you're banking, you're, you're rest and your hope and your joy and you're going to find that that evaporates and you're vulnerable. We find a sure ground we stand on peace with God. So what is your joy rooted on? Ask yourself this and then watch. I ask myself this and I watch that my joy, I, I'm not an incredibly, I'm not a huge roller coaster emoting person, but I certainly see trends. We all see trends in our lives. And I notice the trends in my life. There are a couple of particular things which are material for this conversation, but a couple of things that when they're going well, I'm a little high. When they're not going well, I'm a little low. And what I want to say to myself there, not in any condemning way, and what I want to say to you there, not in any condemning way, notice that and repent. For your joy, for lasting joy. We're, we're real people. We are embodied people. We're affected by the world. But the thing you need to ask yourself is that, is that it, too much of your weight standing on temporal blessings and the happy working out of life. Say to yourself, I. I pray, Lord, show us Christ the King come in humble power to make peace between us and you. 
Show us that Christ and that peace for a steady and lasting joy even when the failures of life come. This would be for our joy and for his, his great glory. So let me pray towards that now. Father, would you open our eyes to Jesus and what he has done to make peace for us with you. To turn heaven itself into a place of celebration. A place of, of joyful welcoming and a place we need not fear. Would you show us that? Would you cause us to see him and to see that reality, that place in which we stand, we who are Christians, we stand there forever. And would you, Lord, draw others on? If there are some here who are not believers, would you draw them onto that? Show them the hope. Show them Jesus the King who comes humbly now to reign for their lives, to give them life. So here, Lord, we're in, we're in your hands. Build us up. Thank you for being a shepherd who is good. We love you and we trust you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.